and welcome to the Belt and Road podcast, where we look at the latest news, research, and analysis on China's growing presence in the developing world. I am your host, Eric Mike Serino, coming to you again today from Durham, North Carolina. Uh, first, I just want to thank all of you who have been listening. I found out yesterday there is a feature where I can see where my listenership resides. It was really exciting and interesting to see that over 53% of my listenership is not within North America. And so thus far, they've been listening from over 77 countries. And that's been, it's more than I ever imagined when I started this project. And I'm really excited to see where this grows. So thank you all for listening. And a quick reminder that we are constantly posting the latest news, research, and analysis daily on our Twitter and Facebook page. You can follow us at Belt and Road Pod. Speaking of Twitter, when it works best, it is such a wonderful way of finding exciting new research. I've been following uh, Boston University's Global Development Policy Center's director, Kevin Gallagher, for quite a while now. If you haven't followed him yet, you should follow him at once, at Kevin P. Gallagher. And last week, he posted information on a talk given by Alvin Kamba, a PhD candidate at the Johns Hopkins University at the Department of Sociology, and a pre-doctoral fellow at the Global Development Policy Center at Boston University. After Googling Alvin's work, I became incredibly excited about the extensive fieldwork he's had, particularly in the Philippines, but all throughout Southeast Asia, and the writing that he's done on Chinese capital in the Philippines. It's a topic I thought would be illuminating for our audience, and I'm very excited that Alvin accepted to be on the show today to talk about his upcoming paper entitled Reexamining China and South-South Relations, Chinese State-Backed and Flexible Private Capitals in the Philippines. Alvin, welcome to the Belt and Road Podcast. Uh, yeah, hey, Eric, what's up? Um, thanks for having me. Really excited you're here. So in the beginning of your article, you speak about the two main narratives in which tend to dominate the discussion on what China is doing in the developing world. Can you explain them as you see them and where you find each of these viewpoints fall short? Okay, so, you know, when China started to become like an important political and economic player in the late 90s, a lot of research and analysis have started to like come out, right? There's an idea that China is a, a new colonizer. It's, um, you know, Patrick Bond called it a sub-imperial. It's a, it's a, it's a sub-imperial entity. Uh, David Harvey calls it capitalism in the 21st century. So China is the next phase of historical capitalism. And then you have a lot of like international relations scholars who come out and argue that, well, this is a threat to the rules-based regime, to the liberal international order. And then, you know, China is definitely an imperialist, right? So you have that perspective, um, sort of like China is an, it's a new colonizer, it's a new imperial entity. And then you have another perspective, which is the complete opposite. China is the new engine for growth in the global south. So you sort of see this much more south-south relations in some development studies. Even, even some Marxists have actually started to like agree with this narrative. When Giovanni Arrighi, who's uh, one of the world system scholars who passed away in 2009, I think, um, he talks about how, you know, how China is a regime of accumulation without dispossession and sort of an example in the global south where capitalism can be more redistributive and can be more like helpful. So I sort of see these perspectives as very broad and sort of all-encompassing that they don't take a look at nuances, particularly because China does different things. In Southeast Asia, you have the South China Sea issue. But then at the same time, you have capital exports that can be more developmental. So if you take a broad perspective, you will end up missing the nuances. So what I do, what I do in this paper is instead, instead of looking at like what China does as a whole, I look at the capital it sends out. And from the capital it sends out, we can deduce what kinds of activities come from this capital and what are the implications and what are the effects. Yeah. And within this, you 
focused on a xenocentric capital export regime that you split into uh, two types of capital. What are these types of capital and what are their characteristics? Right. So when I like formulated the xenocentric capital export regime, it sort of comes from the idea of, you know, you're familiar. I mean, everybody knows about the xenocentric um, tribute trade system, Mm -hmm. right? Back in the uh, thousands of years ago before European colonization came in, right? Sort of like there's an orbit like that. A lot of like Southeast Asian states have started to trade with China and all these other things, sending tribute to, you know, have peaceful relations, right? So I formulated it from that, but it's not really derivative of that directly. There's an idea right now being pushed forward by, uh, for instance, my advisor, Ho Feng Hong. He's from um, sociology in Johns Hopkins. He talks about how China has encountered what he calls, you know, overcapacity. I mean, everybody knows about this, right? So overcapacity, you have expansion of manufacturing. At the same time, you have falling rates of consumption in the West. So as a result, you have overinvestment domestically. At the same time, you don't have enough value gains from selling commodities to the West, right? So as a result, you're not profiting so much from it. That's the idea. Uh, he sort of had a spin to it. He calls it, instead of overcapacity, he calls it overaccumulation crisis. So this goes back to, you know, the old idea of how capitalism tends to like go into like periods of overaccumulation. And when you overaccumulate domestically, what happens is that capital is re-exported out of the country yes. in order to look for, you know, new ways, new venues of accumulation and new ways to profit. That's its mm-hmm. idea. So I took this idea and basically and basically like added the parts of, well, capital is being re-exported. I agree with it. But there are different types of capital that is getting exported. You have state-backed capital and you have uh, flexible capital. So for me, state-backed capital is, you know, people are much more familiar with this when we think about policy bank loans from Exim Bank, from CDB. When we think about SOE investments in the global south, Huawei to China, a construction railway company and all these other like big SOE investments. So for me, this is like state-backed capital, mm-hmm. much more tied to the state, much more tied to the policy prescriptions and requirements and the policy goals of the Chinese Communist Party and sort of the different like Chinese entities. When we think about regional governments, city governments and, you know, smaller like entities, right? Government. Yes. So for me... Uh, so it differs from like sort of flexible capital. When I think of them as much more private capital, I think of them as um, something that is trying to es- escape the sort of the whims of the of the party state and sort of like invest in the global south. Now I know I'm going to get some pushback on this. People all specific, people always argue, well, you can differentiate state and private capital in China. I I mean I agree that it's hard to differentiate it, but I disagree that they're inherently the same. I feel like there's a big difference between the savings of a Chinese millionaire that he wants to take out of the country and invest somewhere and sort of his own investments in links with, for instance, the, the Chinese SOE and the Chinese SOE's investment somewhere else. So for me, that's a, it's sort of like, a, it's, a diff, it's, it's another way of talking about like state and private capital, but at the same time, they're, they're different. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly, I could see somebody making that critique, but I also very much see where you're coming from, where... The, the lines of private and state-backed capital within China are quite blurry, but they're certainly within that continuum uh, situations in which there is much, much more state-backed uh, capital mm-hmm. deliberately. Um, and I, I would even think that there are differentiations within the state-backed capital, uh, yeah. whether it be central or whether it be within a uh, specific type of sector, like a natural resource or a, or a rare mineral type sector that's very strategically important for China, as opposed to, you know, a road construction firm and uh, throughout the global south and, and, the, and the private capital, like a Chinese millionaire just trying to find 
us uh, another type of market abroad. Um, well, if Please. I could add to that, um, yeah, I mean, I agree. There's a lot of differentiation between state-backed capital. Um, nonetheless, despite the differentiation, I'm trying to come up with a single process that sort of comes about from state-backed capital, which I call dual eligibility. Now, when I think about private capital, I sort of think of it as like the money that China sends to Hong Kong, for instance, is going to be very yes. small, right? In terms of like the initial capital amount or capital outlay that gets sort of like committed by like some sort of Chinese like mm-hmm. company. But nonetheless, you have Hong Kong's capital markets are used to like get so much syndicate loans, right? From from like, you know, Wells Fargo, from Citibank and sort of a lot of this like Western yes, sources, yes. right? Although ultimately the user is going to be the Chinese company, but the initial sources will be like Western, sort of like Western financial mm-hmm. entities, right? So for me, when you get uh, loans from somewhere else, and it's not inherently the party state, capital markets, your objectives will inherently be sort of modified, right? You will have more commercial considerations. So for me, this is like what differentiates between, it's another difference between like state-backed capital and flexible capital, where state-backed capital is much more directly from the PRC going in in the global south. While flexible capital, of course, I'm not saying that all Hong Kong capital is flexible capital. But because there's increasingly more commercial objectives tied to a company that gets loans from international financial institutions, syndicate mm-hmm. loans, right? Then that will be much more, to me, much less tied to the state and much more tied to like commercial considerations. Yeah. And you mentioned within that answer about dual legibility in which you really draw out within this paper. And yeah. I, I, I loved it. It made very intuitive sense when I, when I saw it. And so the dual legibility that stems from Chinese state capital um, first, can you give our listeners yeah. a primer about legibility within this context? And then how does the Chinese state capital create what you can title dual legibility? So the idea of legibility, I draw it from James Scott, yes. right? So James Scott, he has this book called Seeing Like the State, where he talks about how high modernist uh, authoritarian governments are tend to have this process of categorizing and simplifying complex processes in order to control it. This comes from the idea of when, when he was talking about colonizers mm-hmm. and when, when colonizers go to a completely different area, they tend to like try to understand what's in the area at the same time, create, you know, arrange the, arrange the areas in simplified ways so that the functions of a settling a community can function, can like continue. If we just oppose that to what a state does, a state tends to arrange uh, population and processes in simple ways so that the state can function much more coherently, like taxation, conscription, and you know prevention of the rebellion. So the, the basic idea is that Chinese state-backed capital gets exported in the global south. It tends to modify the processes in the global south, whether it's uh, the procurement of materials, you know, environmental impact assessments, or you know, dealing with the population. And when you modify this, it tends to follow the processes and the procedures that's laid upon, that's laid down by the Chinese state. Yes, and so so can you expand upon the dual legibility of it? So it, it does two things. Number one, it makes the receiving country legible to the Chinese state. Let's say uh, you know the Chinese government sends capital to the Philippines, and then it goes to a province in the Philippines. The both the Philippine government and the province becomes knowable and more understandable than the Chinese state. They get information, they get data, they get idea of like who to work with, what kind, how many people, um, who's the opposition. So when things become more knowable, it becomes it becomes more possible to sort of like deal with, deal with like the issues, deal with the unknowns, and sort of like you know push forward your agenda. But it has a dual aspect as well because the receiving uh, there is on the receiving end you have the host state government. And the central government is given more capacity and more capability to deal with like local government opposition or local civil society like resistance, mm-hmm. right? Because the moment that the central government gets Chinese capital, 
the central government can use this capital to sort of like create a dam in like some province. And because of the capital, it enhances the government's capability to sort of like understand as well its own country, the opposition in that province, who are the elites that are against the projects, and sort of like standardize the procedures and processes to push forward its own agenda. So in a way, you have two agendas being pushed forward, the agenda of the Chinese state and the agenda of the central government. Can you give a specific case study example of... Uh, the, how the Chinese state has gained legibility of Filipino politics uh, through state-backed capital. So a, a good example of this would be, so there's a recent, so there's the uh, Chinese loans to the Philippines on the Philippine South Rail Project, yes. right? So this is the um, the rail project in the, the Bicol area, and it has, I think, nine stops from Metro Manila to uh, the Bicol region. Now, when the process started of like exporting capital to the Philippines, the Chinese state had to send people to like work with the Philippine government, um, people from different departments, commer- the, the MOFCOM, um, you know, people dealing with commer- the commercial part to the SOEs, yeah. right? And from there, they had to negotiate with not just the, na- the national government, number one, but they had to look at the local governments too. Talking to like the governors, the local mayors, the the people in dealing, you know, sort of like, okay, where can we put this train stop? Where can we like um, create this? And what do you guys need? So in terms of like directly dealing with the local government, the Chinese government is able to get information on like, oh, what are these localities like? What do they need? How can we deliver? So for me, this is already like um, enhancing the Chinese government's capacity to like push this project in the future because you're like creating linkages between the between the local governments and the Chinese government. At the same time, they're also modifying the processes of how things are done because there are particular procedures tied to the exim bank yeah. loan, right? But putting forward the uh, the reclamation of the land, sort of like well, not the reclamation. I'm sorry. What, what's what's the term for it? Sort of like uh, getting the land for the uh, for the train project. Yeah, right? like you know, that accumulation of land. That, yeah, gaining yeah, the rights for it. Yeah, that ha- yeah, gaining the rights for it that had to be expedited. That had to be pushed forward for you know hiring hiring workers, for instance, right? Hiring local workers. Um, that you know that had to be modified too. I mean. There are local workers get go, who are going to get hired for this project, and that's actually good for me. At the same time, it's the fact that it had to sort of like be under and sort of like follow the procedures of the um, the Chinese government. For me, that's already legibility. Yeah, and then I can see this project moving forward much more and sort of like... Even let's even if we assume that this project fails, let's say some opposition comes about, right? And then the project fails. Future projects of the Chinese government will have it easier to sort of uh, implement future, you know, implement like future plans because you know you know the local politics much more. Uh, some of the procedures have already been modified, so therefore if we, the procedures can be used much more easily. Yeah, I, I was just I was going to say with some of the limited field research I've done within Chinese state-owned enterprises that do major infrastructure projects abroad, I, this really very much corresponds with it of how much ad hoc the nature was at the beginning of the going out process in terms of trying to find EPC contracts, finding local connections, you know, often going in blind with limited experience, whatever country they're going into. And then from either successes or failures, they making connections and drawing institutional knowledge basically based upon this excess capital. And so these SOEs can gain the legibility of how the lay of the land works basically on the fly. So it's, 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 it's interesting. So, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So just to like draw from what you said, um, the legibility is not just a question of control. It's a question of the accumulation of knowledge for the local areas. And it's also a question of um, 
it's a process of like doing it for me. Yeah. And bouncing off of that in the second half of the dual legibility, can you give a specific example of a Chinese state-backed project that then how the, the Filipino elites were able to gain more legibility within the Philippines, within their jurisdictions? Going back to the South Real project, this is a project between the Duterte government and the Chinese government, specifically the, the Department of Finance and the National Economic Development Authority and the procedures that they had to lay out, mm-hmm. right? So because of Chinese state-backed capital, and this gave the impetus and sort of the you know legitimacy for these institutions to sort of like go to like the provinces and negotiate with the local go- with the local governments and say that well we need this amount of land we need this from you guys you guys have to work with us if you want this train project to like you know continue right mm-hmm. for for me it's all it's also about empowering the Duterte government in terms of like you know dealing with local opposition and dealing with like local governments the fact that they have a national project and they have funding for it and the fact that they can like that they need their help that they need uh, the cooperation of this local government entities in order to push the project forward that's at least that's the idea and 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 what's interesting is that it is actually pushing forward um you know, local governments are agreeing to it. Some of them have resisted, but I think in the South Rail project, most of them have agreed to it, despite like issues, um, initial like resistance, of course. But yeah, I mean, th- at least for me, that's the idea. It really empowers the lo- the national government and the Duterte regime, the national elites over like local governments, or it makes it makes the local go- local elites follow the national government. Um, at the same time, it gives them more opportunities to sort of like put local opposition like aside. For instance, like civil society. Or, um, you know, any sort of uh, issues when it comes to like, you know, people complaining about land. Yeah. yeah. And that's inherent within the the, the capital itself um, because it's centralized it, and, it's, and it's negotiated on an elite central to elite central level. Yeah. And then the, yeah, yeah, for sure. And it, without that capital, they wouldn't be able to go there and tell the local elites, well, you know, to, to basically make the process move. So the second type of capital in which you wrote about uh, was the flexible capital that's entered from the uh, from China into the Philippines? Uh, how do you define the flexible capital? State back capital I draw from James Scott. Flexible capital I draw from like you know much more Mar- Marxist inspired works, right? So one of it is David Harvey. There's also Giovanni Arrighi. Yeah, a lot of other people have like uh, wrote about this, but not in the context of China or not in the context of Chinese capital. So the idea for me is that flexible capital, it expands the spaces of accumulation and generates new sources of production. So it sort of pushes the economy to sort of create new sectors where it can create jobs, not necessarily good jobs, but it, can, it creates activities, it creates economic activities. I see this in the Philippines much more, not just during the Duterte administration, but like even in the Aquino administration, and the Arroyo administration. If you take a look at the artisanal small-scale mining in the Philippines, it was um, pushed forward by flexible Chinese capital. So Chinese money that's looking for opportunities to basically earn more money, working with Filipino Chinese elites and local Filipino elites to create small-scale mining firms and you know do mining. So extract minerals, gold, nickel, and copper. And then they end up smuggling these minerals out of the country. And what's interesting is that they operate the, they created the small scale mining firms beneath and sort of like outside this, the monopolies of like large scale mining firms. So a lot of the large scale mining firms in the Philippines have been monopolized by local Filipino elites or by Western companies. So flexible capital for me ex- expands the mining sector because it creates spaces for extraction outside these monopolies. So that that's an example. And this is this happened a lot during the Aquino administration. The the second example is the offshore gambling. So I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but this is a really, really big issue right now in the Philippines. 
offshore gambling right now is expanding and it's mainly companies that service gambling company online gambling companies in China, Macau and Taiwan to um sort of like give service to players from all over the world including Asian American Chinese and even like Malaysian Chinese Indonesian Chinese and you know people from Taiwan and then you know they go online and they play some game so the staff and the third and sort of like the people who are like manning this are in some sort of company like in the Philippines so that's called that's called online gambling or offshore gambling so that capital has really expanded during the the Duterte administration uh, there are like uh, re- reports of like hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands of mainland Chinese uh, workers going to the Philippines, and then a lot of them are illegal, and then you know they work as like call center agents for these companies. You know, if a gambler from Indonesia Indonesia has an issue, then they end up calling the customer service hotline, and then the person who's gonna answer is this uh, Chinese uh, migrant in, who's located in Metro Manila because the companies are created. So for me, this is like a new economic sector. That's why it's that's why it sort of expands the sources of accumulation, right? That's that's why it's flexible capital. It's a totally new sector that was created because of you know opportunities and the desire to earn more money. I think you spoke about it a little bit, but how have these two types of capitals, the uh, the state backed capital and the flexible capital, differed uh, between the last two administrations, the Aquino and the Duterte administrations, and how has that affected the? So how does these types of Chinese capital interact with the changes in Filipino domestic political economy? I mean, so state backed capital was limited during Aquino because of the South China Sea issue. So a lot of the state backed capital in Aquino were continuation from the previous administration from the, from the Arroyo period. When the projects were finished in 2012 and 2013, the Aquino administration limited the amount of Chinese state-backed capital going to the Philippines. So you never really had any of these major projects. So when Duterte became the president, he welcomed Chinese loans, development finance, um, all these other types of government-backed capital. So state-backed capital really expanded at that time. Now, flexible capital, what's interesting is that in both administrations, to some degree, they're both criminalized. Like the small-scale mining, a lot of them were illegal, and they really expanded during the Aquino administration. Now, when Duterte became president, of course, some forms of flexible capital are legitimate, like the private capital going to like you know Filipino businesses, right? Mm-hmm. But the offshore gambling issue is well, it's not that's not criminalized by the Duterte administration, but the Chinese embassy in the Philippines has been trying to force the Duterte administration to take a harsher stance on the offshore gambling issue because the, this type of capital and this this type of business is like illegal. In the you know in Macau in China, mm-hmm. so because it's illegal, they don't want to see um, you know, the expansion of gamblers in China, and they don't want to like see their own citizens going to the Philippines. But you know, nonetheless, it's been expanding. And the Duterte administration, because of the way the coalitions work, and because of you know the people who back Duterte, are they're working with this offshore gambling company. So yeah, so it's 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 not really criminalized in the offshore gambling one, but nonetheless, it's creating a lot of issues. A lot of Fili- Filipinos are against it. And that the Chinese government is also against it, which is like funny. Huh. Has there been any shifts in terms of within the flexible capital and the, or at least the private capital of what sectors in which Chinese firms or Chinese investors have been going into in the last between these two administrations outside of the yeah, small scale so mining and the offsite offsite gambling? 
Well, the off the offside gambling or the offshore gambling is really really big. So I created a data set and like looking at where the Chinese firms, where are the new firms in the Philippines with Chinese investments, and most of them are in real estate and business activities. And if you take a look at the companies specifically, a lot of them are sort of these offshore gambling ones. So yeah, I mean it's really really big. And then some of the policies have sort of adapted to like open up this open up the economy to like Chinese flexible capital. Mm-hmm. So state by capital, we know that people have been writing about this. Duterte opened up the economy to China. That's it. But like when it comes to flexible capital, there were very specific policy changes that opened the economy to offshore gambling. But when we talk about other sort of flexible capital, like other sectors, yeah, I mean leasing and uh, business activities like wholesale and retail, for instance, that has like expanded a lot. There's also services. Uh, real estate is a big, like you know, receiver of money, Chinese money as well. Um, basically, all the sectors in the most of the sectors in the Philippines have received like Chinese uh, foreign direct investment, or I would call it flexible capital, that resulted from like the third opening the economy. Now, just to like quote some numbers off the top of my head, I think in 2017 there were a thousand two hundred companies, new companies that opened in the Philippines with Chinese FDI. So that means that more than 10 percent of the shares are. From PRC citizens, right? Mm-hmm. And then during the during 2016, uh, second the third and fourth quarter of 2016. So this is when the Duterte became president. There were um, I think 600 to 700 companies as well, new companies that opened up because that with a minimum of 10% Chinese uh, investors, right? Yeah, I mean Chinese equity. But before that, during the Aquino administration, the average was around three to four hundred. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, you can see like the the, the increase of um, the new the amount the number of companies that are opening after the Duterte became president. I don't know if you actually have these numbers, but how would that compare into the opening of for other multinationals or American or European firms or Japanese firms in the Philippines, or has there just been a large, yeah. a big, a bigger explosion from China during that same era? I mean, so I did the same thing for the biggest investors. I mean, the other investors sort of like they have like the same. If you look at the average number of companies with shares from other investors, they remain the same. Wow. The the, the real change really came from Chinese FDI uh, and Chinese slash Hong Kong FDI, but mostly like ch- the people people with uh, Chinese citizenships. Yeah. Or um, you know, investing more than ten percent in a Philippine company. Yeah, that's really that's really the big change since the Duterte administration, and a lot of these are private. And I think a lot of people focus on like you know loans and state back capital, but I feel like um a big part of political economy as well is all about private capital. There's there's ownership, for instance, right? I mean, the fact that they're going to stay there and they, they might influence policies that that's really important. Uh, well, fascinating. So, uh, I think one important thing is uh. Why this paper is framed? Look at Chinese capital instead of capitalism, like Chinese capitalism, right? I draw from the works of uh, C.K. Lee, who's from the University of UCLA. Like, um, she wrote she wrote this amazing book, The Specter of Global China, and then she started this trend of criticizing people who have talked about Chinese capitalism and sort of like she was arguing we need to take a look at the capital instead of the capitalism part, and if. This goes back to like really interesting conceptual ideas. If we think about the idea of Chinese capitalism or American capitalism or German capitalism, there's an assumption there of nationality. Like the nationality affects the way the economy works, and then for me, that's a big assumption to make. And I think she's definitely correct in saying that if we sort of assume that we sort of assume that particular ethnicities and identities and politics they sort of like shape the way the money works. And shape the way the economy works, and I feel like that assumption needs to be interrogated. That's why she's correct in in saying that. Well, 
we need to take a look at the money instead, instead of assuming that the nationality affects the money. So this is where you can differentiate between different types of Chinese capitals or different types of American capitals. And I think she's totally right. So the fact that if you if we assume that um, money comes from or the, the way the way capital works comes from the nationality, it's sort of one single answer to sort of you know the different sort of capitals, which I think is wrong. It sort of doesn't look at variation. It doesn't look at differentiation. And I feel like this is why we need to take a look at capital. So in the, in the paper, I highlighted state-backed capital and flexible capital. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more. And I think this is the third time on the show. Julia Julia Liu uh, recommended the specter of global China. Uh, then I did. Oh. Uh, then I did later. And now you are. And so a fourth time for all, all, any listener who hasn't picked up the book yet, the specter of global China. Alvin, uh, thank you so much. Stick around for recommendations. You've been listening to the Belt and Road podcast. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook at Belt and Road Pod. So, Alvin, do you have a recommendation for us today? Yeah. So you you already mentioned the you know the specter of global China, um, but I mean I would definitely recommend like Ho Fung Hong's like the China Boom. It's more of like a global political economy take on like Chinese capital and Chinese capitalism. And then sort of like the paper that that we've talked about, I draw from like C.K. Lee's book and Ho Fung's book to sort of like put it in the Philippine context. Wonderful. I highly recommend those as well. Uh, for my recommendation today, it's a short piece uh, that was on the Center for Global Development's blog uh, entitled, Why is the White House Scuttling Its Biggest Development Win? Four Hidden Daggers Pointed at the Heart of the New United States International Development Finance Corporation. It's by Todd Moss and Aaron Collinson. Uh, and it just talks about the Build Act and the US IDFC. And now when the new budget came out, all these pitfalls and the, you know, the devil in the details of how, however small it was before, it could be very crippled unless uh, Congress changes something before they pass the latest budget. So for all those uh, policy nerds who really want to get into the details of it, I highly recommend reading the piece from the Center of Global Development. Well, Alvin, it's been just a, such a pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks for coming on the Belt and Road podcast. No, yeah, thanks for having me.